Well, we're, we're studying and we're going to continue today. This is really part of the vision for this church because it's really not, it's not complicated, sophisticated. It's just really simple. Is Jesus chose his disciples in John chapter 15. Don't turn there. In John chapter 15, he said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. You're not in the kingdom of God today because you chose him. You're in the kingdom of God today because he chose you. None of us were that smart. None of us were that wise. We were all dependent upon His grace and mercy. Some of us were quicker to respond than others. But He chose them, He said, and ordained them, that means just set apart, so that they may bear fruit and that their fruit might remain. And then we've looked in Matthew chapter 4 at how He called them. We went back and looked at that calling. We saw that he appeared to them. We looked at four of them, James and John, the brothers of Zebedee, and then Peter and Andrew, his brother. And what they had in common, they were all fishermen. And he went to where they were, and we looked in Luke's account a little more detail of how he did this and what was involved. But in Matthew, he said, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. What we saw is Jesus' calling was to simply follow him. It wasn't to establish something. It wasn't to build something. It was, it was simply to follow Him. As they followed Him, He did things in their life. And that's true of us today. You were called by God out of this world, called by Jesus to follow Him. That's it. Jesus said, I will build my church. Our job is not to build a church is to follow Him. And this is where so many people miss it. They're trying to do things for Him. And that's not what He told us to do. He said, just simply you, follow me. And we saw that to follow them, Him, they had to leave what they were doing. That doesn't mean you've got to leave your job, but they left what they depended upon. They left where they got their value from. They left the things of their life in order to, whatever it took, whatever they needed to let go of to follow him, that's what they were willing to do. Because we saw you can't follow him and stay where you were. Because he's not staying where he found you. Aren't you glad? Six of you were. Okay. (laughs) And then he said, if you follow me, I will make you into something. Not we make ourselves. I will make you, and what he said I'll make you is I will make you into fishers of men. I'll take what you have been doing to produce your livelihood, and I will change you so that you are now doing what I want, and what I want is to fish men, to bring lives into the kingdom of God. And we saw that's because what God cares about more than anything else is people. He's provided everything else for us, blessings, provision, all these things He provides for us because He loves us. So that's what we've been looking at, fishers of men. We've seen examples of how Jesus did that, and now we're beginning to study how did Jesus do that? What did He do to to catch fish, people? We've talked about the fact that that a fisherman will go throw his... uh, cast his rod or cast cast it out into the water and he has only the way you get the fish out of the water is with what? A hook. This isn't rocket science. We've talked about if you throw the hook in the water but you don't put anything on it, the fish are not going to bite. Why? Because there's nothing about that hook that's attractive. The fish doesn't want to come out of the water. Except in very rare cases, the fish wants to stay in the water. They don't want to come out and get in your boat. They don't want to get in your boat. They don't want to get in your tackle box or whatever it is. They don't want to come home. They don't want to be filleted. They don't want to be, they don't want to be skinned. They don't want to be filleted. They don't want to be baked and they don't want to be eaten. They want to stay where they are. And the people that Jesus has called us to reach want to stay where they are. By and large, they're not going to come jumping out of the water into the church. They're not going to come. So we're going to, have to go get them. And how do we draw them out? And so we saw that that just throwing a hook in, because the hook is what brings them out, but they're not going to bite the hook because there's nothing about that hook that's attractive to a fish. And that's what we've been looking at. So what does a fisherman do? He puts 
bait on the hook. And so what we've been talking about last week, and we're going to continue to talk about this week, is choosing the right bait. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and graciousness in our lives. We thank you that we're here today because you fished for us. We didn't come looking for you. You came for us and you drew us. For every person in this room this morning, there's a different testimony of how you drew us out of the world into yourself because you care so much about us that you know our individual lives and what it will take to reach us. And so, Father, now as we stand up and begin to take our place for what you've called us to do, we ask you today to continue to give us wisdom and understanding and more than anything else, to touch our hearts, Lord, so that we would have the same passion for people, lost people especially, that you have for them, so that we might do your will. And for the grace to do that, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Turn with me to, to Luke chapter um, 4, I think it is. Let me just see. I should know. Yeah, Luke chapter 4. While you're doing that, what we talked about last time, the bait that we talked about last time, is, is, is Jesus loved people. And we could spend a year on that. But we're gonna, we need to move on. But we saw that, that, that Jesus didn't judge people. We looked at scriptures that said he came to seek and save that which was lost. We looked at John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But the next verse we forget so often, verse 17, for his son didn't come into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The church is missing that. Because we think we're here, and I'm not speaking to you individually or me, I'm just the church at large, especially in the United States. By and large, we're here to, ju- the church seems we have the position of judging people. Judgment doesn't draw fish, that's the barbed hook alone. It doesn't catch fish, it drives them away. We saw that Jesus didn't do that. We looked at some examples of where, where he, there was a woman caught in the act of adultery. If there's anything that's wrong in the eyes of God, it's adultery. They brought and threw her down at his feet, and, Jesus, and they said to him, under the law of Moses, she should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus' answer is so profound because he didn't, he didn't dismiss it because that's where so much of the church is today. Well, God's a God of grace and God's a God of love and He just accepts us and loves us right where we are. Well, He accepted and loved her, but He also dealt with the sin. But they wanted to see Him judge her. They wanted to see Him stone her. And Jesus never dealt with that issue. He said, okay, let's just talk about who has the right to do it. She deserves to be stoned to death under the law of Moses because she's guilty as charged. So let's talk about who has the right to do it. Under the law, he who is without sin, let him throw the first stone. And of course we saw that they all walked away because none of them qualified, starting with the oldest who probably had the most to remember then why do we as a church, why does the church today think we have the right to stone those that are guilty of sin? I'm not talking about sin within the church because we're not talking about catching fish in the church. That's like catching fish in a boat. We're talking about catching fish in the water. Why do we think we're here to judge? Now, we judge what's wrong. We're not here to agree with the world's teaching and what the world's attitude's about, you know, what's right and wrong. We're not here to compromise what we believe, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about judging people. I was in line the other day at a, at a, at a place to get just a quick bite at lunchtime, and there were people in front of me that had all manner of things stuck in their bodies <laughs> in all manner of places and all manner of tattoos. And I just was not raised around that stuff and have some my own personal opinions about some of that. And I've found some attitudes rising up in me 
and I had to preach to myself. A number of years ago, there was this popular saying, oh, they had it on wristbands and, you know, bumper stickers, what would Jesus do? And it becomes so common that it became almost a cliche, so we just kind of laughed. But that's really the question to ask in those situations. What would Jesus, what's Jesus' heart in this situation? Then we saw him, we saw him in, in, in having dinner with the, with the Pharisees. And this woman comes in just so grieved by her sin, comes to him for forgiveness and pours her tears out on him and, and anoints her, his feet with, with oil. And, and the Pharisees get all bent out of shape and say, you know, wait a minute, if this guy's really a prophet, he ought to know what kind of person this is because they already figured her out because she was a prostitute. So they had her judged. And he ought to know, why is he even paying attention to her? Why, why did they come to him? Why did the children come to him? Why did the, why did the sinners come to him? Because there was something about him that gave them hope for them, that they could be accepted and loved and changed by coming to him. What does the world feel about the church today? Do they feel that same drawing to us? If not, we're failing. We're not doing what we're here to do. We may be doing all kinds of other good things, but this is what we're primarily here to do. So that's what we looked at last week. The first bait Jesus used was the grace, the love that he loved people with. He gave them hope. He gave them a promise of a future of redemption, of forgiveness, of deliverance from all the things of life that had made them dirty and get, took their hope away from them. Today we're going to look at a second thing Jesus did, which is also an ingredient of the bait. Now keep in mind what bait is. The purpose of bait is to draw the fish in such a way that they'll, it'll open its mouth and in biting the bait, it takes the hook by which we draw it out of the water, in this case, into the kingdom of God. So there has to be something about that bait that that fish wants or desires or needs. And that's what we're looking at. So Luke chapter 8, 4, excuse me. Luke chapter 4. Just seeing if you're paying attention. Yeah, right. Verse 18, now what's happened is Jesus has now been anointed into his public ministry and at some point comes back to his hometown where he'd been brought up and he goes into the synagogue and he stood up and read. Now other accounts, and I think it's Matthew gives a little fuller account of this. But here's what I want you to see. He found the place where it's written, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That happened when he was baptized in the Jordan River. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty or freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The acceptable of the year of the Lord referred back in the Old Testament to what's known as the year of Jubilee. Every, 49, every 50 years, on the 49th year, there was the year of Jubilee, which is where all debts were canceled, all forms of bondages, servitude were canceled, and it was a fresh start. And so he, that's what he's referring to here. It's a fresh start. All bondages, all debts taken care of, and you're given a fresh, clean start. And he said, the Spirit of the Lord, I've been anointed by God, by the Spirit of God, to do these things. And notice there's to meet people's needs to meet people's needs. In 1 John, you don't need to turn there. In 1 John chapter um, 3, verse 8, it says in the second half of the verse, For this purpose was the Son of God manifest or revealed that He might destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus came to deliver people from the works of Satan. If we go back, and we're not going to take the time to do that, back into Genesis 1 and 2, you see the creation of the world, the creation of the universe, and the creation of man, God's crowning achievement. 
God fellowshiped with him, walked with him and them. And then in chapter 3, we see Satan comes in. He was cast out of heaven, out of, out of heaven to the earth as a punishment to be held here. And he comes into this garden, this beautiful garden. And we see in John 10.10, he came to steal, kill, and destroy. And he, he convinces them to break God's commandment, and by do, so doing, a curse is released in their lives and in the, in the earth. And you and I are living under that curse today, the effects of that curse. If you look in Romans chapter 8, it talks about the earth is groaning. This earth is groaning. I heard, saw this morning, there were two tornadoes in New York City yesterday. I mean, there's drought, there's upheaval. The earth is struggling. It's groaning. And it's groaning under the weight of the effect of sin. Sin is not just acts, deeds that are out there. Sin is a spiritual force that opposes God, that rebels against God and God's goodness and God's authority and God's righteousness and who God is. It rebels against Him. And anything that rebels against Him gets out from underneath His goodness. It's like yesterday when it rained, getting out from underneath, or the other day when it rained, it's like getting out from underneath your umbrella. You're going to get wet. So there's a, there's, a, there's a curse in this land, in the world. There's a weight, a heaviness, a struggling. So in order to do things, the world is working against us. And that's what God said in Genesis 3. And so Jesus, it says in 1 John chapter 3, one of the things he came for was to destroy the works of the evil one, especially in people's lives, to redeem now, we're talking about bait. We're talking about something that we offer to people that meets a need that they have or a desire that they have so that they'll want to come and receive what you offer them and in so doing, the Spirit of God is able to catch them and bring them into the kingdom because you and I don't catch them. We'll talk about that later on. All right. We just present the bait. So what did Jesus do? Well, let's go back to Matthew. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. So we saw that he loved people. He gave them hope. He offered them forgiveness. He offered them a second chance. The things that more than anything else we desperately need. So Matthew 4, I'm not going to read them, but in verses 18 through 22 is what we've already talked about where he came to the, those four disciples and he said, you've been fishers of men, I'm now going to, fishers of fish, I'm now going to make you into fishers of men if you call me. Now verse 23 is what he then went to do. And Jesus went about in all Galilee. Actually, the, in the Greek, the tense is a continuous tense. He was going about. So this wasn't a one-time event where he just one day or for three days had a crusade and he went into Galilee. This was his normal manner of operation. That's what this implies. Jesus was going about or went about in all Galilee, look at this, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Now, to bring that out of religious terms, preaching just means declaring. That's what that word means. And the gospel of the kingdom, the word gospel just means good news. So I, I read it this way. Jesus went about through all, was going about through all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, explaining to them, that's what we're doing this morning, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. A lot of people out there think about the kingdom of God and they don't think of good news. That's what we talked about last week. I told you the story, I've told you before, of the woman that was, that was found on the street, a young girl found on the street that left her, had a fight with her parents, left home, ended up, thought she could live on her own and ended up having to be a, a, a teenage prostitute in the streets of New York. And this preacher found her and was talking to her and said, well, why don't you go, why don't you go back to the church? She said, it's the last place I'd go to. Why? Because she'd feel condemned. So she didn't see that the church apparently was bringing good news. Jesus said he was going, says he was going about teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming 
the good news of the kingdom. So part of the bait is to let the world know that the kingdom of God is good news. If there's anything the world lays today, it's good news. I subscribe to one newspaper, and I'll go through it every day, and I, it's hard to find anything that's good in there. And it's not because they're making things up. They're just, this newspaper is basically reporting what's out there, which is rare nowadays among newspapers. And, and, but it's still, it's not, there's not, because there's not a lot of good news that's what the world considers newsworthy. There's good things going on. And proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. But notice, Jesus didn't just talk. It says he taught in the synagogue and he proclaimed. That's what you do with your mouth. That's what we've been talking about. Opening our mouth and sharing the good news. By the way, what we have for them is good news. Have you ever been to a restaurant and you just, or some, you know, saw a movie and said, oh, this was neat. And what do you do? You tell your friends, don't you? Wow, you need to see this movie or you need to, you need to go to this restaurant or, wow, this was neat. Why? Because it was good for you. You enjoyed it. It, was, it touched you. It did something for you. So you want to share it. Well, the gospel is supposed to touch us in such a way that we can't keep our mouth shut. So notice, he taught with his mouth. He proclaimed with his mouth the good news of the kingdom But look at the rest of this verse because it's all part of one idea here. Remember, this is not a one-time event. He was going about doing this. Teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. We're talking about bait. Having something that we offer to those around us that they need. What did did Jesus do? He didn't just sit in the synagogue, that's the church to us, and teach. That's what we're doing this morning. But he went out into the world and he proclaimed, he was telling the good news of the kingdom. But he didn't just tell it with his words, he did things. And notice what he did. In fact, if you go through the Gospels, you'll find if you study his activities, you'll find that the thing he did more than anything else was to teach. The second thing he did more than anything else is what we're about to read. Proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases among the people. He did that more than anything else other than teaching. See, I was raised in church to believe... Now, it wasn't, it wasn't the church I was raised in. As far as I know, nobody was saved. If they were, they did a good job of hiding it. And I had no idea where I was ra- I, what it was anyway. But we went to church. Good people, good church. Faithful. And they communicated an image of God that God was way up there somewhere, out of reach, and, and, and that, you know, if you lived good and you did well, you could get to heaven maybe. That was ba- and that's what basically most of us were raised with to some degree, unless you were raised in a church like this. And so my idea of, of Jesus, that he performed these miracles to prove who he was. Then all he had to do is once. In fact, we're going to see it's kind of interesting that in sermon places where he performs a miracle, he tells them to not go t- to tell, not tell anybody. Now, why would he do that? Well, how about reverse psychology? No, that's just lying. And Jesus is the truth. He cannot lie. So he had to sum up the reason why he told them not to go tell people. Why? Because he had a crowd control problem. That sounds to me like people are coming to hear what he has to say. I wonder why they came to hear what he had to say. Is it because he met their needs? It wasn't his advertising campaign. He didn't have an advertising budget. He wasn't on the internet. Not that there's anything wrong with that. He didn't have a website. 
He didn't have billboards. In fact, really the only thing he had was the right bait. Because apparently it worked. Because he had to have, he had such crowds around him that he had to tell people not to tell what he was doing. Imagine that. The preacher said, look, we've got too many people. Don't tell anybody. Now, I don't know. You've heard me refer. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Dr. Young Hee Cho's church in Seoul, Korea. But the last count I heard, they had 750,000 active members. Not on the rolls, but active members. When we were in Bible school, I, he came to our school and he taught. This was back when he only had 250,000. And, and, and his, the problem he had was he was people were coming in so fast he couldn't handle them to church. His main sanctuary, I don't remember how many sanctuaries he has, but the main sanctuary only holds 10,000. In order to get in there, you have to bring somebody with you that's never been to church. That's the only way you can get into the main sanctuary. And at one point, he couldn't. He was having so much trouble getting with people flocking into the church that he that he took people from a northern, far northern part of South Korea, and he contacted a pastor up here. He says, "I'm assigning, I've forgotten, was it fifty thousand people to you?" Because he couldn't handle them. They have, um, uh, they have cell groups, they call them, but they're like our connect groups. And, and, and he called his leaders, his cell group leaders together. And he said to them, look, he said, you know, you're going to have to slow down bringing people to church because we, can't, we don't have enough facilities here. And this little old Korean lady, and you have to understand the culture of the times, especially back then, because we're talking maybe 25 years ago, stood up to him, which would be very unusual in their culture. And says, Dr. Cho, we can't stop bringing them. You started something in us, we can't stop. It's your job to figure out where to put them. <laughs> Somewhere, somehow, they were offering to the people something they wanted enough so that they were flocking to the church. Jesus had that kind of crowd control problem. Why? Wasn't his advertising? Not the kind we talk about. Wasn't his website? He had the latest website. It wasn't because he had out there Jesus apps on the, fo- on the, on the, on the smartphones. It wasn't because he was on Twitter or Facebook or all those things. Not that, well, I won't say not there's anything wrong with him, but I'm not, not that. Not, but but he did. He wasn't using any of that. And I think sometimes we're trying to use, and we have those things. We're trying to use the world system so much instead of just offering the bait that he ordained. I mean, I'm pleased you're all here today. But there wasn't a line outside the door, was there, to get in? You didn't have to get here an hour ahead of time just to make sure you got your seat that got assigned to you. (laughs) But let me ask you a question. Is that because all the needs of everybody we know out there are met? Then there's a breakdown somewhere. Either we don't believe we have something to offer them that they want or need, or, or we've lost sight of it in our own lives. Because one of the questions is, if people look at me, what do they see in my life that would want them to come here? Now, you've got to know, I'm preaching to me in this as much as I'm preaching to you. This is not something I've attained, but I know it's right. And I know I have to go there. And my responsibility is to lead us there. Let's go on.
So he not only talked about the kingdom, but he did something, and his doing this was demonstrating the kingdom of God. Look what happened in verse 24. And his fame went throughout all Syria. Now you got to understand, Syria is not Israel. He's going around all of Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel. Syria is north of that. We're not now talking about Jews that have a covenant God with God and know who Jehovah God is. We're talking about the world, the Gentiles, the unbelievers out there. They heard something was going on in Galilee. They didn't understand the theology. They didn't understand that this wasn't offered to them. They didn't understand anything. But there was a man there who was healing people. There was a man there who was delivering people of diseases, of sicknesses, of all kinds, of all manners of sickness and disease. And that news, the fame about what he was doing was spread abroad. Not on the internet. Just by word. You know, that's still the most effective advertising. Word of mouth. Word. And then an interesting expression. By word of mouth. It's amazing how many things require us to open our mouth and say something. Okay. His fame went throughout all Syria... And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So he's got the fish following him now. Why? Because he offered them a bait that met a desperate need that they had. They didn't care about his background. They didn't care whether he had a degree or didn't have a degree. He was meeting people's needs. And when you get to that point where there's no other hope except God, you get desperate enough to go where the answer is. All right, let's move on. Now, what happens then is the crowd gathers around him. Chapter 5, which we call the Sermon on the Mount, but it really starts by saying there's a multitude gathered around him, so he went up on the mountain and his disciples followed him. So the Sermon on the Mount is really addressed to his disciples, not to the multitude that was following him. So we're going to go, we're going to skip chapters 5, 6, and 7. That's the sermon where he's talking to his disciples. And we're going to go to chapter 8. Now chapter 8 is essentially one day. Let's look at what he did. And when he come down from the mountain, great multitudes, they were waiting for him at the base of the mountain. Imagine that. They didn't say, where is he? Let's go home. They waited for him at the base of the mountain. Great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy, especially in that day, was uncurable, essentially. So he has no other hope. It's not a choice of, well, you know, I'll go to the, this clinic in Jerusalem, but I can't get there in time or whatever, he had no other option. And he comes and he falls down at Jesus' feet and worships him and basically says, I know you're able to heal me. What I don't know is, are you willing? And Jesus' answer is, I'm willing. And immediately, Jesus putting out, I love verse 3. Because look, verse 2 says, Behold, the leper came worshiped him and saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus puts out his hand and touches him first. Understand that a leper in those days, legally, if they didn't want to be stoned, if anybody approached them that was not also leprous, they had to cry out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Imagine having wherever you go to have tell people you're unclean. And of course, what are they going to do? You're saying diseased, diseased. They're going to stay away from you in droves. 
And he comes up and worships Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He doesn't say, yuck. Tattoos. Body piercings. Weird hairstyles. Ugh. I don't want to have anything to do with that. He reached out and did the unthinkable thing. I wonder when the last time that leper had had a human touch. Notice before he says anything, he touches him. He touched people. He touched people. And said, I'm willing to be made whole. Go and report to the priest under the law that you may go through the purification. Now he goes to Capernaum, city also in this area. Verse 5, and a centurion comes to him. This is again, it's interesting because we saw, we saw Syrians come to him and he healed them. Now we're seeing a centurion, Roman officer, we've talked about him a number of times, comes to him and says, says, my servant is lying home, grievously suffering of, of, of paralysis. And before he has a chance, Jesus has a chance to say, before the, 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 the centurion has a chance to say what he wants him to do, Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. By the way, he still will today. I said he still will today. Let's go down just so we can move along because there's so many of these to cover. We can cover. Let's go down to um, uh, verse 14. When Jesus had come into Peter's house, this is still all one day, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and served them. Then when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick that it may be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Then he talks to them a little bit about what it means to be a disciple and what the cost of discipleship is. And we're not going to dwell on that right now. He goes, tells them we're going to go to the other side. A storm rises up. He speaks of the storm, rebukes there because they, they didn't do it. And then in verse 28... When he came to the other side, he's met by two demon-possessed men coming out of a tomb, so fierce that no one could pass by. And demons speak out to him, and he casts the demons out, and the man sits there in his right mind. Verse 34, look at that. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. In this case, when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Just because they smell the bait doesn't mean they'll bite it. They came out to see him, but they decided they didn't want him in their region. So they asked him to leave. Notice he didn't get upset about it. He just left. He offered something to them which they rejected. Our job is to make it available not to make them accept it. Okay. Let's go over to chapter 9. He crossed over and came to his own city. Behold, they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And once the scribes said to within themselves, this man blasphemes. And Jesus said, because he knew their thoughts, why do you think evil in your thought? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins? He said to the paralytic, rise up, take your bed and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house and multitudes who saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to the Son of God. That's not what it says, is it? To men. Now, there's a more complete version of this, but I'm doing this because it's part of the continuation here. These men climbed up on a roof because they couldn't get in the door. 
because there was a crowd there because he was teaching. And they interrupted his message, tore a hole in somebody's roof, and lowered their friend down into the... Imagine that. In the middle of Sunday morning, we hear noise up there. Of course, in order to do that, the place would have to be packed. They removed the tiles and they lowered him in front of him. You better be right. (laughs) They were that desperate to get their friend to Jesus. Why? Because they were convinced if they brought their friend to Jesus, he would heal him. So much so, they risked being whatever was going to be the consequence of ripping this guy's roof off. I want you to feel the motivation. They were desperate. There was no other answer. This guy was going to live the rest of his life paralyzed. And they heard there was a man that healed people from all manner of sickness and disease. And all they said, if I can just get to him, if I can just get to him, my friend's going to be healed. And they had an obstacle. They got there, the church was filled, or the house was filled. They could have said, well, we tried our best, and walked away. But see, they were so determined to have their friends meet net that they wouldn't let any obstacle stop them. And it said, Jesus seeing their faith. How did he see their faith? Because they believed so much that their friend would be healed, they risked everything to get him there. When was the last time we were willing to do that for somebody? I said, I'm preaching to me as well as to you. All right, let's move on. Let's go to verse 27. When Jesus had departed from there, well, excuse me, verse 18 through 26 is a story of a woman, it's the better version, the more complete versions in Luke uh, chapter 5, but uh, in Mark chapter 5. Uh, but in this case, Jesus is approached by a, a, a ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, who comes to him and says, my daughter, in this case, he said she's dead. In Mark's version, it says she's dying. And Jesus said, I'll come and heal her. Notice it's an interruption. He, wasn't, he was going somewhere else. He's now going to go heal her. And on the way, there's a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years. She's seen every doctor. She paid all her money out for doctor's bills, and she still wasn't any better. In fact, she was going worse. She had no hope. Notice Jesus didn't go find her. He, she found him. Why? Because she said, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made well. There's something about him that if I just, I don't want to bother, but if I just touch the hem of his garment, I shall be made whole. And so she's an interruption in his interruption. Are we willing to have our day interrupted? by the needs of people around us. And I'm talking to me especially today. Or are we so busy that we're not willing to stop and be sensitive to the needs of people around us and what God might want to do in that situation? We're talking about the right bait. What do they need? What do the people around us need? These people desperately need healing and had no hope, had no other alternative. She touches the hem of his garment. In Mark's version, it says Jesus, she, she was immediately made whole. The bleeding dried up. And then Jesus, and Jesus felt power go out of him. And he turns around and says, who touched me? It's a little off the subject, but, but this is the thing that convinced me. Because notice the order of events there. She touches him. Power goes out. She's made whole. Jesus asks who touched him. That means Jesus didn't know who she was until after she was healed. 
So if it's, only, if it's God's will to only heal some people and not others, wouldn't he have had to known which one of those she was before he released the power? Wouldn't he have to know whether she's on the A list or the B list? The yes list or the no list? Because she's already healed and he doesn't know who touched him yet. He doesn't know who received the healing. He just knows somebody did. There's another place where a group of them said, they, they came to Jesus and said, and what they said to themselves is, is if we just touch the, his garment, we'll be made whole. And the last part of that verse says, and as many as touched him were made whole. So who was it up to who got whole? Them, whether they touched him or not. Not him, because it's whoever touched him got whole. They determined how they received their healing. He'd already determined it's available. See, when you're catching fish, you don't say, no, I want this one, but I don't want that one. Now, a fisherman may be asked after the specific one, but you don't reject others unless, of course, you know, that don't meet the legal limit. So, anyway, all right. I better move on. We're talking about the right bait. Verse 27, Jesus departed from them. Two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he came to his house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. He touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, let it be done unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, saying, To tell no one. There you go again. If he was doing this to prove who he was, why would he tell them to tell nobody? But when they departed, they spread the news about him in all the country. They couldn't keep it quiet. Why? Because of what he'd done for them. They couldn't hold it back. They were blind their whole life and now they can see. You may have had this experience, but I don't know if anybody, I'm not thinking of anybody here this morning that has, but suppose your whole life you've been blind and you're maybe 30 years old, 35 years old. There's no hope you're ever going to see the light, what, the, they, what, your, what your family looks like, what your children look like. No hope of it. In one moment's time, this man touches you and now you can see. It's like the man in John 9. You know, they made a religious issue out of it. Well, who is this guy? He said, I don't know. I only know this. I was blind and now I see. You figure out who he is. That's all I know. And he was rejoicing. Notice, they kicked him out of the synagogue and Jesus went and found him. He didn't find him in the synagogue. He found him when they rejected him. That's when Jesus found him. Imagine your whole life and suddenly you can see. And he tells you to be quiet about it. No way. They didn't have to take him through an evangelism course. Saying, all right, now here's the first thing you do. You need to go and you need to take these five steps in order to reach people. They couldn't keep him quiet, keep them quiet. Why? Because what Jesus had done for them was so real, so powerful, so contagious that they couldn't be quiet about it. Why are we so quiet? Is it that we've lost touch with what he's done for us? Or we really don't understand what he saved us from? Things to think about. Things to pray about. They're serious things. Verse 32. And they went out, and behold, they brought to him a man who was mute, demon-possessed. And when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke and the multitudes marveled. Notice the multitudes are often involved when this happens. We're talking about catching fish, bait. 
and said, It's never been seen like this in Israel. But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the rule. They had to find some way to dismiss what he was doing. Verse 35, And Jesus again was going about in all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, number one. Number two, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And number three, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Look at verse 36. And when he saw the multitudes... He was moved with compassion for them because they were weary or harassed, that actually means, scattered like sheep having no shepherd. He's one man meeting people's needs and they're flocked around him. And he looks at the multitude and is moved with compassion. Verse 37, and he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In other words, the need out there is great. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Understand that this is all part of one discussion here. So the chapter 10 doesn't, isn't a break in the idea. And when he called his 12 disciples to them, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. Now verse 2 through um, 4, he goes through who they are. Verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them saying, don't go to the way of the Gentiles and don't enter the city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of Israel and as you go preach or proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That means it's right here. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. In other words, this is in response to what he saw when he looked out over the multitudes and his heart was moved with compassion. He couldn't reach them all. He wanted to. He wanted to see them delivered. He wanted to see them set free. That is the heart of God. Because if you look, we're not going to take the time to look at it. If you, I can show you a whole bunch of scriptures where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He is the Word, the full expression of the heart, the will, and the character of God. John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The character, the nature, the desire, the heart of God took on flesh and dwelt among us. So if you want to know what God's like, His heart like, His desire like, look at what Jesus did. Hebrews 1 says He is the outshining of God's nature. Not a reflection. He contains it and it shines out of Him. This is the will of God in action. The heart of God in action. And Jesus looks out and says, he was moved because he couldn't reach them all. He says, look at the harvest. Or all the fish out there. The need is great. But there's only a few laborers here. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. So he pulled the twelve aside and he commissioned them. What I've done, you now do. I give you power. Notice it can be given. This is the power of God. It's the word dunamis. I give you power. I give you authority. It's another word. And he sent them out to do the very things he did, which was to meet the desperate needs of people that they couldn't meet for themselves. See, if it's a need they can meet for themselves, they'll let God meet it last. Because that way they're still in control. But when you get to a point where you're beyond yourself, there's no answer anybody around you has, then they'll turn to God if they believe He'll do it. Now, just in case you think as I was raised to think, well, but that's the apostles. That's the, that's the 12 disciples. 
If you turn over, we're not going to do it this morning, to Luke chapter 10, you'll find out he also commissioned 70 others the same way. He commissioned 70 others the same way and he sent them out. And they came back and reported, Lord, it worked. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. And Jesus said, keep it in perspective. I saw Satan fall like lightning. I'm not impressed that you've got authority over him. I gave it to you. Here's what you need to be focused on, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Now let's go to John chapter 14. Jesus is part of Jesus' last instructions to his disciples. Verse 12. Most assuredly, or verily. Now let me ask you, can you imagine Jesus lying? Then why does he have to tell you I'm telling you the truth? That's one of my pet peeves. People can, well, well, Pastor, to be honest with you, does that mean that at other times you're not? so that when you know you're going to be honest with me, you've got to tell me you are. See, we use terms we don't think about, but that creates, that's another message, but that creates subtle messages in our own minds that I don't always tell the truth. So I've got to tell you when I am. Is that what Jesus is doing here? Oh, no. It's what he's about to say is so astonishing, he has to shake them by saying, look, this is the truth. Most assuredly, I tell you, that he who believes in me, the works that I do, we've just looked at some, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, Pastor, that's good. I mean, this is what he's giving to his disciples. I mean, that's, you know, Matthew, Mark, that's the disciples you know, that's Peter and James and Andrew and all those disciples. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's see what he said here. See, we've see, we, we got to go by what the Bible says, not what tradition says. Most assuredly, I say to you, that you twelve, the works that I do, will you do also. That's not what it says, is it? That he who believes in me, I'm going to ask you a question and your eternal destiny depends on it. Do you believe in Him? Then He's talking to you. That's why He's got to say, most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do, we've just looked at some of the works that He did. He met people's needs supernaturally. Healed diseases that could not naturally be healed. Delivered people from bondages. Destroyed the works that Satan had done in their bodies, in their souls. Set them free. Thousands upon thousands. There's verse 35 of Matthew 15, I think it is. It says, They brought to him the maimed and the lame, people with limbs missing. And it says, They saw the lame walk and the maimed made whole and the blind see. They saw it happen in front of them. And they were all healed. This is what he did. And now he says, If you believe in me, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works. Now people get in dispute. What are the greater works? Well, it's saving people. It's to let me. Before you get to that dispute, make sure you're doing the works. When you've been doing the works, he did. 
Then we can discuss what the greater works are. But until we're doing the works, let's not talk about, debate the greater works because that becomes a reason to not do the works. Because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That's connected to that. All right. Matthew 28, of course, is the Great Commission. Don't turn there. The Great Commission, Jesus says, Behold, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, you, therefore, you go forth and you teach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, making disciples of all men. But notice he says, All authority has been given unto me, therefore you go. So we're to go in that authority. But the purpose of that authority we've been given is to bring the gospel, is to do these works. Mark 16 is even clearer. Because in Mark 16, he goes on and says, he says, for all those who believe shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover or cast out demons. It's basically all the works that he did to those who believe. So get out of your mind, this was just something for the apostles back in the days of Jesus. I know it's taught out there, but you cannot find it in your Bible where it ended. Oh, it stopped, but where Jesus ended it. In fact, it's going on today. Let me ask you, have any, has anybody in this room that's been healed? Well, how can that happen if it's ended? Okay. Now, I, we don't have time to go through all this, and I, don't want to, I want to get it over today. But if you go into the book of Acts, you'll see in chapter 3, there's a story of Peter and John coming to the gate beautiful to worship. There's a man there who's been lame from his birth. He's never walked. And he's begging alms. And it's so interesting what James, Peter and John say to him. They say, well, we don't have any money, but what we do have we give you. That's all God requires is that you give what you have. And what did they have? They'd been given the authority we just said. So they said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And they grabbed him by the hand. His strength went into his legs and he stood up and walked and it brought a whole crowd around. Bait. Bait. And Peter launches into a sermon. And thousands get saved. Bait. 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 Meeting people's needs. Acts chapter 5 tells us that they carry people into the streets that just his shadow crossing it, might, they might be healed. And crowds gathered again. When they found Peter was going down a street, crowds gathered. That's just like with Jesus, isn't it? Well, you say that's just the apostles. In Acts chapter 6, we see the story of Stephen, who was a deacon. He was a table waiter. And he performed signs and wonders. In Acts chapter 8, Philip in Samaria, another table waiter, goes down there and does signs and wonders, and a crowd gathers around him, and miracles are taking place. What are we saying today? By the way, in other parts of the world it's going on. We've had times when there'd be great healing revivals where we'd have revival after revival of people just for healings, people getting healed. But I believe what God's saying to us is He wants us sensitive to the needs of people around us out there. It's time to go outside the doors. We've come through an era where, you know, we're looking for blessings in the church. We're looking, we're going to have great meetings this week. That's wonderful. But the purpose of all of this is to prepare us to take bait out there. And, it's, and the needs are around us. There are people all around us 
But we get overwhelmed sometimes that I don't know that I can do that. It gets so overwhelming sometimes to look at people's needs. What can we do? That's what Jesus was. He was overwhelmed. He said, my goodness, it's so great out there. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers out. But if we'll just start, say, well, you know, who, who am I? What can I do? It's not you. It's Jesus in you. Because remember what Peter said to the man that was lame. What I have, I give you. What did he have? The name of Jesus. Say, well, what if it doesn't work? Just keep doing it. Does a fisherman give up if a fish pulls the bait off his hook or it doesn't work? They just keep fishing. Just keep fishing. Just keep fishing. Try it. Now, I'm not suggesting you go to Rhode Island Hospital right now and just start pulling people off the beds. You've got to use, unless you know your faith is there. You've got to grow in this. God doesn't have to grow in it, but it's our faith in His name, because that's what Peter said when he was hauled on the carpet for having raised this man up who was lame. He said it's through faith in his name that this man's been made whole because they thought they were gods. And, and as God begins to flow through you, don't begin to think it's you. We're just the one holding the line and putting it in the water and putting the bait on the hook. That's our role. But if we'll do it, watch what he'll do. If we'll do it, watch what he'll do. Let's pray.